Well, good morning. Welcome this morning. We've been in the middle of a series called Exiles, where we've been going through the, the book of First Peter. Uh, we've been kind of going through that book as an equipping type uh, sermon series, where we've been asking the big question, what is it that the church is? What is it that it's doing in the world? Why, do, why are we here? Why has God called us? Why has God sent us into the world? And the answer to that question basically is that we are to be a sent people, a people that are exiles in the world. We're not tourists. We're not just there to see the world but not get involved in it. And we're not people that move there and become part of the, the world either. We're sort of living this tension between those two things. We're exiles or strangers, Peter calls us. And, and so we're, we're to be people that love the world deeply and yet operate by a different standard. And so what does that all look like? What does it all mean for us? So we've been unpacking this for, this is week 10 now. We've got three more uh, sermons in this series. We're going to end this the week before Easter on the 24th. And then we'll have Easter Sunday and we'll start something new after that. So uh, if you're following al- along, we're going to be in First Peter 4. And we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 11 this morning, which is on page 841. If you remember last week, the question that we really asked was, uh, what happens when you get to the point where you start asking the question, were things even a little bit better before I became a believer in Jesus? All of us kind of get to that point in our walk with Him where we hit a wall a little bit and we go, man, things, things looked like they were better before I got involved in this whole Christianity thing. What do you do when you get to that point? And what we said basically was that the only way that you can overcome that question is to remember the greater story that you're a part of. The fact that God created the world by His power to exist for His glory and that He created us, his human beings, to reflect that glory. But that in our rebellion against Him, we wanted to be God in place of Him and so we walked away from Him. And ever since that day, God has been patiently, slowly, but surely pursuing His people uh, over and over and over again throughout the story until finally He sends Himself in the form of His Son Jesus to this world and says, I'm going to redeem a people for Myself and that people is going to be My possession. They're going to show the world what I'm like. And so if we remember that we're part of that story, we exist in it, we'll be able to overcome this question because we'll realize this story isn't about us, but it's about Him and His work in our lives. It's about what He's done for us, not what we do for Him. And so everything that we do for Him is a reflection of what He's already done on our behalf. Um, So this is important to remember for us as we're going through this. And we basically broke it down in the fact that everybody either lives for one of two things. They either live for human desires, that is, in rebellion against God, or they live for the will of God and for His glory. So today, so last week we kind of unpacked what it looks like to live for other things. And then this morning we're going to unpack what it looks like to live for the will of God. What does that look like? How does that kind of work itself out in the practical way that we live our lives? So that's what Peter's going to address today, and so we're going to follow up with him starting in verse 7. So let's read along. The end of all things is near, he says. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should speak. uh, 
He should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So if you remember last week when we talked about these things, we said everyone lives for two things. You either live for human desires or you live for the will of God. And to live for human desires is to essentially give ourselves away in the form of worship to something that will never satisfy us, but we run to that thing as if it will. All of us are worshipers or we're glory givers all the time. We're constantly giving away our worth and our value to something. And when we exchange the truth of who God is for His creation, we end up giving ourselves away in worship to things that cannot sustain us, and that's called idol worship. Those things tend to be false gods or functional substitute gods that we look to in place of God. And so often we're deceived because we think that our desires for these things are always good, and yet God knows that oftentimes our desires are actually leading us to destruction. And God wants to free us of those things because He knows that He's the only one that can sustain. He's the only one that can give life. He's the only one that can bring about security and happiness and joy in our lives. And so when we substitute him for something else, he's going, no, 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 you don't understand what you're doing is going to destroy you, ultimately. And he wants us to to direct our worship elsewhere. So what does it look like when we're actually doing that? Well, 1 Peter says this, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. So you remember at the very beginning of this, he says, the end of all things is near. In other words, there is a grand story going on and it's about to come to its conclusion. And that story, all things, are heading towards one moment in time when all things will give proper glory, correct glory to God and who He is. And so our lives are all part of this story that's heading towards this conclusion when one day God is going to essentially make all things right again so that Nothing in His creation will give glory to something else. We'll all give it to its proper place. You might think about it this way in terms of a painting. When you go to a museum and you start looking at a painting and you think, man, how beautiful is this painting? What do you give glory to when you start looking at that painting? Do you say to yourself, man, the the way the paint just hangs on that canvas is incredible. I mean, look at the texture of that paint. Look at the way that the canvas just stretches itself over the borders of the frame. I mean, isn't it wonderful how it... I mean, how does it do that, you know? You wouldn't do that, right? When you go to a museum and you look at great art, you think to yourself, wow, what a painter. I mean, the skill and the craftsmanship and the creativity that went into this work of art is phenomenal, right? You don't think about the tools that were used to make the thing glorious. You think about the person that put their life onto canvas and, what, and, and it's displaying the glory of the person painting it, right? That's what we do. And we give glory to that person. We give honor, credit to them. That's why their name is in the corner of their work of art. So in the, in the same way, we're part of a story where we can either give credit to the tools which created the masterpiece, or we can give credit to the person who, who made the masterpiece themselves. 
So even when you're looking at a, a piece of art or you're thinking through that, that museum idea, what if you actually gave credit not just even to the painter, but the one who created the painter? Because it's that one who gave the painter experience and skill and a mind to think creatively, who poured into that person the very image of God so that they would take a paintbrush and create works of art. But so often in our lives and, and, and in our experience, we end up giving glory to the lesser things rather than to the Creator who created those things. And here's the thing. We know, right, that the story's all about Him. How many of you have ever read the Bible? Okay. How many of you have ever read the first few pages of the Bible? How many of you have ever read the last few pages of the Bible? Okay, for those of you who have, how does the Bible begin? Who is it about? In the beginning, who? God. How does the Bible end? (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Those of you who read the the credits at the end of the the story. (laughs) Yeah, right. Who's it about at the end? God, right? It's all about God coming down, heaven and earth meeting together again, and God choosing to dwell with His people in the way that He had created them in the beginning. So if you read the bookends of the story, it begins with God and it ends with God. What do you think the rest of the story is about? It's about God, right? I mean, I know we're doing like a a Sunday school type thing here. Um, but, But here's the thing. So often when we read our Bibles, we read it through the lens of me, right? And and we read all the stories as if they're all about me and about how I can improve and how I can be a better person or how I can do this or I can't do that. And we read it through the lens of me. The story becomes about me and we lose our perspective of the entire story. The story is really about him. That's what we have to get into our minds. That's what Peter is telling us here. We have to understand that we're part of a story that's coming to its conclusion and that that story is all about God and about Him receiving glory. And and so if we miss that, then we actually miss our place in the story. We get wrapped up with it being all about us and we'll completely forget what what life is really about. We will. And we'll completely miss the whole reason that we're here. He's reminding us that it's all about Jesus. It's about His return and His role in God's plan. And and that as His people, we have a role to play, but it's in giving Him glory, not giving us glory. So let me ask you this. You can be honest with me, okay? How many of you have ever asked the question, what is God's will for my life? Come on. My hand's up too. It would be up twice if I were two people because I know that everybody has asked this question at some point in time or another. It, for me, that question was a really pressing one um, when I was just getting out of college. And I think it is for a lot of college students because you're going through this time period where you're asking the questions, what's next? Okay, I've, I've done the school thing. I've gone from high school into college. I've gone to the school that my parents wanted me to or I've rebelled against them and gone to the one that they didn't want me to go to and I've done that route. And now, now I'm out and I'm, I'm supposed to be like a, a responsible person in the world and not just live in my dad's garage for the, for the next 20 years. So, so what is God's will for my life, right? Uh, here's the problem with that question. What does it assume? 
What's the assumption of that question? What's that? That God has a purpose in our lives. Yeah, that's, that's one thing. Yeah, that's, that it's my life to have purpose of, and God needs to support me in that purpose. That was really the struggling question for me is when I was thinking through this. Is I was thinking through life primarily from an individualistic standpoint. I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do that finally. And I need to find out of all these paths which one God is kind of directing me down, sort of the yellow brick road of all of these paths, right? So God, reveal the yellow brick road for me in my life. Here's the the alternate question I would, I would ask you to, to ask of yourself. God, what is your will for your story? And, and how have you created me to be a part of it? Now, how is that a different question? Yeah, who's at the center of that question? It's God, right? So there's a trust element there because if we believe that life is all about us, then when God is seemingly absent or directs us maybe down a way that we weren't anticipating, we go, well, that doesn't seem to be the way that I'd like to go. It may be the way that you're leading me to, so maybe I'll take an alternate path and I'll go down this way for a little bit of time until ultimately God leads us back. But when we ask the question of him first, and then we ask the question, how do I fit into that will, we're more likely to live our lives in such a way where we're constantly asking the question, God, what are you doing what are you up to? How are, what are you about, and how can I be a part of it? Th- that's the question that Peter wants us to ask. So what is God's will? His will is that he would be glorified in everything. That he would get the glory or the credit for everything that happens in this world. All the good things that go on. It would all lead back to him. And so his will for us and for his people is that we would be set apart We would be holy, as Peter says, uh, to live our lives in such a way that it would actually bring glory to Him. So what's the answer to that question? What's God's will for my life? It's that I would exist to bring God glory. That's it. That's the answer to the question. Now I know that that takes all the mystery out of it. um, and, And maybe it oversimplifies it. I understand that. And some of you are probably asking the question at this point, how is that a good thing? Like, that doesn't seem like such a good thing. How is it? Well, here's the good news in that, is that everybody needs God for life. Just as the earth needs the sun to exist, every human being who's ever lived on earth needs God in order to live. You do, because he's the creator, and we're the created ones. And so we live our lives according to his rules, not according to ours. We need him to function. And every time we choose to rebel against that way of life, we do it to our own peril, right? Everyone needs God to live. That's what we were designed for. We are designed to give him our lives because he's the best thing for us. So to put it in another way, you and I are actually to live lives that give God glory by the way that we tangibly love one another. That's God's will for us as His people. That we would live lives of tangible love in such a way that everyone will come to know just how great He is so that they would turn to Him too and find life just as we've found it through Jesus. 
So how do we do that? What does tangible love look like in practice? Well, Peter's going to talk about three ways that this kind of tangible love is going to show up. He's going to, he says it's going to show up in our relationships, it's going to show up in our environments, and it's going to show up in our acts of service towards one another. So let's look at the first one, that we're to have relationships of tangible love if we're his people. So I'm not necessarily talking about dating relationships here, but all relationships of God's people. And what, so what does tangible love look like? Well, Peter says this, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. In other words, we, we would love in such a way that's enduring, that, that never gives up, that we would love with great effort, not just when people treat us well, but despite how they treat us. A love that will take, to be honest, a greater power than what you have to give in and of yourselves. Peter says it's this kind of love that covers over sins. And he's referencing here an Old Testament passage in Proverbs 10.12 that says, Hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers over all wrongs. So in other words, wherever there's conflict or dissension or bitterness, wherever those things exist, it's because there's hatred in the heart. And we know because of the story that everyone experiences this kind of thing. I mean, how many of you have not experienced relational tension at all in life? No? No takers, huh? (laughs) At least not in the last 15 minutes, right? See, all of us have experienced that. What distinguishes a community that's after God's own heart is not whether or not it experiences this kind of tension, but what it does when it experiences it. So, so when we experience it, we're to say, look, love is actually the thing which covers over these wrongs. And everyone has been wronged. We all are wronged, and we all wrong others by the way that we live. And what he's saying is, if you want to live a life of tangible love, it needs to be the kind of love which accounts for being wronged and remains in the midst of wrongdoing. Does that make sense? We need to be the kind of people that persist in that kind of love. Now, what in the world would Peter have to know with this kind of dealing with with people, right? I mean, if you remember Peter's story, he he was sitting around with Jesus one time, and they they were seeing that there was some relational tension going on. And, And Peter goes to Jesus, and he goes, how many times should somebody forgive their brother? I mean, he's thinking in his mind, like, is seven enough? And he actually says that to Jesus. Is seven t- times enough? I mean, come on, Jesus. You wouldn't require that we forgive somebody eight times. I mean, that's a lot, you know. He's keeping this internal counter in his mind. And what does Jesus say in response? Seven times, 70 times. So, in other words, don't keep a tally in your mind. It's not like, okay, seven's not enough, but 490 is. And so you're like, okay, we're getting to 480. I'm getting ready to drop you from my life, you know. We laugh, but sometimes we do that, right? To keep this internal clock. Jesus is saying, no, strike the record and bear with people as, as often and as much as they need bearing with. Forgive them as many times as is necessary. And so Peter now is picking up on what Jesus is saying, and he's saying, 
We need to be the kind of people that demonstrate that kind of bearing with one another type of love. So let me ask this. What happened in Peter's life that he would have made this transition from keeping a tally against somebody to being able to say to his community, I want you to love deeply as much as it requires? What happened in his life? Yeah, specifically though, what, what encounter did he have with Jesus that would have revolutionized the way that he thought about this? Yeah, the whole feed my sheep. Yeah, you remember Peter is the guy that, that constantly told Jesus and himself and all the other disciples, look, everyone else might fall away from you, Jesus. I'm not going to do it. Right? Everyone else is going to deny you. And, Peter, and Jesus is saying to all of them, you're all going to deny me. And, and Peter goes, I will never deny you, even if I have to die for you, Jesus. And so what happens not 24 hours later? Jesus is arrested by the Romans and he's taken off to be punished and crucified. And Peter follows along behind him and sits in the outer court where Jesus is being flogged and his flesh is being stripped from his body. And a little girl around a campfire turns to Peter and goes, Hey, don't you know that guy? And what does Peter say? I never knew the man. I never knew him. A little girl around a campfire. I mean, she's probably trying to sell him Girl Scout cookies and he, w- <laughs> and he will not own up to the fact that he knows Jesus. Right? Not once. Not twice, but three times. And then somehow we know that he and Jesus made some kind of eye contact or that it dawned on Peter that he had done this and that Jesus had predicted that he was going to do this and he runs out in shame. And we see that after uh, Jesus dies and is buried and then is resurrected on Easter Sunday and and is going around and, and revealing himself to all of his disciples, to bring them back into his community and give them a new commissioning. He, he shows up in order to find Peter. And what is Peter doing? Peter went back to his old lifestyle, right? He's out on a boat fishing, trying to get away from everybody possible because he was the one who denied Jesus. He was the one that pushed him away. He was the one that said, I never knew him. And Jesus goes and he finds Peter. And Peter locks eyes with Jesus on the shore. And what does he do? He jumps out of the boat and starts swimming towards shore because he realizes maybe, maybe Jesus will give me a second chance. And they're sitting around, of all things, a campfire, eating fish. And what does Jesus say to him? Peter, do you love me? Yes, Jesus, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, you know that I love you. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. See, Peter is saying, I want you to express this kind of love because I know what it's like to receive this kind of love. Right? That's essentially what he's saying. He knows what it's like to deny Jesus to his face, essentially, and for Jesus to come in love and grace and restore Peter back to what he was before, even better now. They say to him, I'm not going to hold that against you. I'm not going to keep a record of wrongs, but I'm going to welcome you back into my family. I'm going to show you this kind of love 
so that you can give this kind of love. Yeah. Yeah, so we know that, that, that that's not the end of the story, but it's the beginning. And, and what happens later on is that God gives us the Spirit to be able to empower us to live out that kind of love that we didn't have in and of ourselves. So now Jesus or Peter is saying, love covers over a multitude of sins. I know I've experienced it because Jesus has loved me well, therefore I can love others well. So if we're going to be a community that gives God glory in everything, we need to be willing to love people even when they sin against us. And you cannot love this way unless there's forgiveness in, in the equation. So let me ask this, just a brief dialogue about this. Why don't we tend to forgive others? When we don't, why don't we? What are some of the reasons? Pride. In a sense, we think we've earned our place before God. And so we think, if they're going to get my good graces again, they need to earn it too. They need to show remorse or they need to work themselves back up, which, by the way, is just playing God. I don't know if you knew that or not. Yeah. yeah. There's, so there's, there's an element of trust there, right, that we don't want to be hurt again. Now, is there a difference between forgiveness and trust? Let me just ask that. Like if, if I drop my kids off with somebody and they harm my kids, am I going to entrust them to them again? Can I forgive them without entrusting? Yeah, right? So there's a difference, a distinction between those two things. And sometimes we think that, that we need to, that the relationship will always be the way it was before the sin happened. And sometimes that's just not the case, right? Yeah, there's an intention going on. And so we're, we're essentially judging a person's motives at that point. Here, here's the, the question, though, that I would have in, in terms of that. Did God know the intentions of our heart when he chose to forgive us? Better than we do, right? I mean, he, he knows the human heart and its condition far better than we understand ourselves because he's the one that created us. And yet he, he even died for those who intentionally spat in his face. Do you think the Romans knew what they were doing when they were nailing the, the, the nails into Jesus' hands and his feet? I think they did on some level, and yet Jesus says, forgive them, for they don't even know the level of what they're doing. So Jesus is always willing to forgive us, even past what we understand our level of intention of being. So if we're going to be his kind of community that receives that kind of love and then gives it, we're going, to kind of, we're going to need the people that say, I'm not even going to hold your motives against you. Right? That's forgiveness. That's real forgiveness. Why else don't we forgive? Because we don't forgive because we think at some level we're going to get away with it. We're going to get away with the hurt. And if we hold on to yeah. the hurt and the anger, then yeah. we're not going to Yeah. Yeah, that's a great one. So there, there's an element of feeling uh, a sense of power, right, in unforgiveness. 
Um, and sometimes when, when, we're, when we say we're going to choose forgiveness, it, it feels like we're letting go of that power, right? Is that, am I kind of picking up on? So, so it feels like a move towards powerlessness, that we don't get to be the judge because we're going to lay down the debt that somebody has against us. Yeah, we're actually the one in bondage, not them. Right. And here's the great news. Um, we know from the story that, that God is the one who is great. He's the one who's sovereign. He's the one who's in control. Therefore, I don't need to be in control. And actually, the reality is I'm not in control. And when I'm trying to be in control, I'm actually the one to be enslaved. So when I'm trying to hold on to control through unforgiveness, what I'm actually doing is being in bondage myself because I'm not releasing it to the one that's actually in control. There is a sense of true freedom when we actually release because that's what we were designed to do is actually to give God the ability to exercise his control because he's better at it, far better at it than we are. Right? Yeah, some of us do that same thing to ourselves and we think... We need to keep this internal record of our wrongs and try to make up for each of them because we could never forgive ourselves for what we did in the past. So what's the good news there? I mean, is there anything standing between us and God? Or has God paid the penalty for all of it? He's already done everything necessary to forgive us. And so when we're choosing to live in unforgiveness even of ourselves, what we're saying is, God, you did not do enough. I need to do just a little bit more in order to gain back everything. It's distrust. It's actually unbelief in our hearts that we're not believing what God, who God is and what he's done on our behalf. See, for what, what forgiveness is, is a canceling of debt. So it, it's essentially saying, when somebody's wronged me, I feel like they're indebted to me in some way. And so you may want that person to reconcile with you and kind of make up for that debt to get you to a positive account. Um, but you constantly feel the, the cavity of, of who you once were based on that wrongdoing, right? That's kind of how, uh, um, uh, uh, when you need to forgive somebody, that's kind of how it feels. And, and so sometimes when we live in unforgiveness, what we're saying is I have no way to fill up that, that negative account balance. Like, it's still sitting in the red. How am I going to do that? If I strike the, the record for them, it's, it's not as if my account just goes back to zero, right? Here's the thing that we need to remember. Who are we in Christ? We are the richest people that ever lived. We, we were people that were walking around with a negative account balance all the time. And that account balance one day was going to stand before the judge and the judge is going to say to us, look, you have a negative deficit. I cannot be reconciled to you because the account has not been paid. And you would say, but I've done all this good stuff to make up for it. And and here you're sitting with a a debt like this and you've paid the tiniest bit to try to get it back. And you're thinking, that's got to be enough, right? 
Here's what happens in Jesus. Not only does our debt get reconciled, completely wiped off the face of the earth, but we get in our account Jesus' righteousness for us. So think of all the things that Jesus did, all the miracles that he performed, all the, 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 the perfect person that he was to stand before God. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I mean, think of the righteousness, the right standing of Jesus and how glorious he is. All of that, if you're in him, is yours. And so now when we're forgiving other people, it's not as if we're forgiving out of a a, a zero account balance. We're actually forgiving out of millions of dollars. You have been given billions upon billions of dollars because you have been accredited to your account the righteousness of Christ. Now what would it mean? So so if somebody wrongs you, you go, take it. I got plenty more, (laughs) right? I got, I, I, I have, Riches in reserve because I have the riches of heaven in my life. So so even if you wrong me, I can choose to love you and forgive the debt because I've got so much more that I can enjoy myself and I can give away everything that I've gotten. See, if we become this kind of people that actually forgive others according to the riches that we have in Christ and the forgiveness that we've received as His children, we will be a radically different kind of people, will we not? And that, that radical difference is going to attract people to us. They want to, they're going to want to know, what is it that makes you different? Why, when, when somebody spits in your face, do you turn around and, and you offer them dinner? It's because I've been so well-loved in Christ. It's because He forgave me. Let's go on to the second thing, which is environments of tangible love. This is God's will for us too, that we would be a people who create environments or create space in our lives that are filled with grace and love. The way that Peter puts this is, in verse 9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. So what is hospitality? It's to make space in our lives for others to be themselves. That's what it is. It's to create margin in your life so that there are actually room for other people. Part of the problem in in Western society right now is that our schedules and our homes and our lives are so overbooked and overfilled with all kinds of things, we have absolutely no space for one another. Peter says you cannot be the people of God without allowing space in your life so that others can be there and be themselves. Offer hospitality to one another. And oh, by the way, do it without grumbling. Why would we grumble when we're being hospitable? Why do you think? Because <laughs> it makes us happy. It's inconvenient. Yeah. What it comes down to is we think our lives are our own. And so when we have to make space for other people to inhabit our lives, we get really ticked off about it. Because it's great when they're there during scheduled times, but when they show up on our doorstep in unscheduled times, when it's me time, that's when it hits the fan, right? That's when we don't want people in our lives and we go, what are you doing here? And inside we're like, hey, great, I'm glad you showed up. Let me get you something out of the fridge. And inside you're like, will you get out of my house? (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. You want the last of those? That's my favorite. See, really, we, we grumble inside because we believe that our space is ours to inhabit. 
And what we need to realize is that nothing that we have is really our own. Everything that we have has been given to us so that we might use it as a tool of blessing for other people. Did you realize that? And so I would say there's a difference between these two things because some of us are really good at entertaining but not so great at hospitality. What do you think the difference between those two words is? Yeah. When you're entertaining somebody, you're setting the agenda, right? Hey, come in, sit down, have this, take one of these, don't go in there, you know, like... (laughs) Talk, talk to this person. We're going to do this activity and then we've got this game and we're going to have this conversation. We're going to watch this TV show and then when it's all over, you need to get out. Right? <laughs> and so oftentimes, the motive of... of yeah, and thank you for being here. Yeah. We should do this again sometime. Yeah. In a few months when I've recovered. Right? <laughs> And so oftentimes when we're entertaining, the motive is for them to think better of us, not for them to think better uh, of themselves and their lives. Hospitality is to actually create space in our lives so that it's not programmed, so that people can be who they are. Life groups can often be like that, yeah, where we're entertaining people in our homes because we want them to think, wow, what, what a together life we have. What a great home. It's so clean and the kids are so great and the conversation is so enriching and, and you leave feeling like you're glorying in the person rather than having you know, some space to kind of be yourselves. So, so why is it that, that God would say, I want you to be hospitable and not just entertainers? Think about it this way. What was God to us? He created a world... And threw everything in it. I mean, birds and animals and and, and sky and water and beautiful mountains and trees and filled it with all good things. And then he sticks two people in a garden and and he says what? Go, be fruitful and multiply. I've made space for you. Go and be yourselves. God does that for us. And then, not only that, but when we go and we screw up His creation and we rebel against Him, and we make a mess of His world, what does He do? He comes and He pays the cleaning bill for it. Right? He comes in the form of His Son and He says, don't worry, I'm going to make all things right again to get it back to the way it was. And now I'm going to make you a new person so that you can live again in My space, be who you are, and give Me glory in all things that you do. God has been so hospitable to us, has He not? That's the definition of hospitality. And so if you realize this, if you believe this in your heart, then it will fundamentally change the way that you view your homes, the way that you view your lives, because you will begin to give space in it for people to be themselves. Space for people to come and have a meal and not feel like you're going to shove something down their throat. Right? It may mean that you leave space for somebody to have a bed to sleep in because they don't have one. It may mean letting others talk without being censored. I mean, we have people in our house sometimes, and some of the things that they talk about, I'm like, I had never thought we'd be talking about this in my living room. I'm just, <laughs> I just never thought to myself, when we bought it 
and have this couch. We're going to be having this conversation on this couch, you know. And here we are. But feeling like the Spirit's saying to me, don't censor them, but allow them to be who they are so that they might have space to see who He is. And this is really hard for me. i just got to be honest with you because I'm a pretty big uh, introvert. Like, relationally speaking, after like a morning like with 100 plus people, and especially if we have like a meeting afterwards, like, don't get me wrong, I love our time together, but by the time I get home, I need a three-hour nap to recover. I mean, that's just, that's who I am. And so... We're, we're pressing against that because we believe that our home isn't just for us, but it's the front line of ministry. And so we're, we're trying to think of ways that we can open up our table to people, to have them in our home, to have space, to listen, to respond, to disciple people into what it looks like to walk with Jesus. And that takes time and it takes energy and it takes relationship. It takes space. And for some of us, that can be a very difficult thing. But here's the flip side of it. Hospitality, I don't know if you knew this, is actually a biblical requirement for church leadership. Look it up. 1 Timothy. It's a requirement for leadership. Why would that be? Because when we open up our tables and we open up our homes and we create space for people, we're actually declaring the gospel with our lives. We're setting an example, right? And if we're not willing to set an example by allowing space for people to exist in our lives so that they would come to know Jesus too, then how in the world can we lead a church to do that so that it would be a people that exists for God's glory so that others would know Him and find Him and exist in Him? It's got to start with leadership, right? We don't do it perfectly. But it is a requirement that we strive for. So let me ask, do you see your home as your own or do, you, or do you see it as a tool to live a life of tangible love so that God would get glory? See, as a church, we want you to bring the goodness of what you've received from Christ to your neighborhoods so that they can taste the goodness of God and not just hear about it. And some of us would say, look, this, I mean, to do this in my neighborhood would be a really weird thing. I mean, nobody does this. Nobody opens up their house and just has people over. It just doesn't happen. Everybody drives into their garages and they close them down behind them. And, you know, they get somebody to come and and mow their lawn for them and you just never see them. It would be weird to go knock on their door. I would say, be willing to be weird. Be willing. Because Jesus was willing to do far more than be weird for you. Right? He loved you far better than to worry about being weird. He's the weirdest guy that ever lived. And he was willing to, per- to be perceived that way in order to demonstrate and offer love to people that needed it. Are we willing to be weird for the sake of the gospel? And here's the other thing. Pam mentioned this just a second ago. God has actually given you his spirit, if you're his, to empower you to do this. So you have an ability beyond what you're thinking you have to move you to do more than you think that you can do. So we'll do the third is this. Not just relationships of love and environments of love. Those things are important. The last opportunity that we have is that we would serve people with acts of love. That our lives would display this. 
So verses 10 and 11, by the way, this is where, if you're wondering where the 410 bridge came from, 1 Peter 410, that's where, that's where they get their name. That's the organization that we partner with in Haiti. Each one should use whatever gift he's received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength that God provides. In other words, we're to be, as God's people, a conduit of everything that God has given to us. So think of a hose, okay? Our lives function uh, like a garden hose. Does a garden hose have anything good in it if it's not supplied with it? Like if you just took a hose from the store and said, I'm going to turn this thing on, does anything happen? No, right? Um, so a garden hose needs to realize it needs to be filled with something in order to give something. Can, can a garden hose say in reality everything that it has is its own? No, it's all been supplied by someone, right? Everything that's within it has come from another source. Anything good and life-giving to your garden that comes through a hose, it's been given from somewhere else, right? And, and the second thing it needs to realize is that the reason that it's been given, what it's been given, is to bless others, and the only way it gets more is to give what it has away. Right? It's got to function in these two ways. Otherwise, a hose is meaningless. If you try to kink a hose so that it kind of contains and keeps all of its contents for itself, what happens to your garden? It dies, right? There is nothing good that comes from a hose if it tries to hold on to everything that it has. And in the same way, our lives only function as as they should, as God glorifying and, and giving others good if we realize that nothing that we have has been is ours to keep. Everything has been given to us so that we would bless other people through it. So, think of your lives. Think of everything, every gift that God has given you. <laughs> think of every gift that God's given Dan. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> He is a good gift. He is a very good gift. All the good things that you've been given in your life. Think of all the experience that you have, the skills that you've racked up, the education that you've been given, the house that you have, the car, the two cars that you have, the three cars, I don't know, the clothes that you have, tools, toys, your job, your bank accounts, your retirement plans, your free time, your socks. Think of all the things. I mean, what if you sat down and wrote out an inventory of all the gifts that God has given you? How long do you think that would take you? Probably a full day if you're going to be really exhaustive about it. What if you actually sat down and made a list of all of those things? And actually, I would encourage you to do that this week. Sit down with a big whiteboard if you need to and list out or a notebook that has a lot of pages in it because as Americans, we got a lot of stuff. And then once you have exhaustively listed out everything that you own, what if you went through that same list and you, and you asked yourself this question? Why do I have this? Why do I have it? 
Why have I been given it? Why have I been given the experience that I have? Is it for myself? Or is it so that I might train somebody else up so that they might get a job in the same kind of field that I have? Why have I been given my tools? Is it so that I can build a great house to my glory? Or is it so that I would lend them out to anyone that had need? And if they don't return them or they return them in bad shape, I would go, well, they belong to God and not to me anyway. And and he may give me another one. What if you went through that list and you said, everything I'm going to inspect to see whether or not it, it submits to my glory or to the glory of God. That will give you an indication of whether or not your life is living in the will of God or whether or not it's living to the will of your own desires. It will. And here's the tough thing. As Americans, we have a lot to list out, which just means that we have a lot more to go through. Right? What if you actually listed those things out? Why do I have this? Do we need to realize that God has given us every good thing so that we would do with that thing anything necessary to give Him glory with it. So think about not just your stuff, but all the words that you say to people. Do you speak in such a way that people would know God's grace, or do you speak in such a way that your own image would be built up in their eyes? The way that we serve others. Do you serve even here among our church in such a way that you feel better about yourselves because you serve? Or because you're trying to say to others, Jesus has served me well, and so I will serve you well, so that you would know that he serves you well too. This is a tough calling, isn't it? See, it, it will probably lead us to the point where we have to say, I could never do these things. And maybe you're saying that to, to yourself right now. And the truth is, you cannot. Apart from understanding what God has done for you. So in order for you to do any of these things, you're going to need to to receive the tangible love that God has given poured into your own heart. You'll need God to work through you so that you can do more with what you have, more than what you could do otherwise. See, that's how He gets the glory for these things because He leads us to do more than we can do. He empowers us with more than we have so that He gets the credit for all that He's done. That's how it works. And by the way, this is a wonderful life to live. I mean, the days when I've gotten a taste of this, it is a beautiful thing to live in the will of God and to release everything to His control. And there are days of struggle when I want to hold on to all that I have. I want to hold on to our house, and I want to hold on to our free time, and I don't want to give it away to other people. In those days when God's Spirit has said, no, 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 you need to open up your hand and release it to somebody else, those mark it down are often the best days of my week. Far better than the ones that I live for myself. And that's why Peter says this. He begins and ends this whole section this way. He says, Be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray, so that in all things, everything that you do, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him, not to us, be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. In other words, what Peter is saying is, we need to be in our right minds about this. We need to understand that it's insanity to think that the world is ours and that it lives and breathes for us. And we need to know 
that if we're going to live it in such a way that it's about God, we're going to need God to do it. So what he's saying is, this kind of life, this is going to lead you to pray. Because you're going to get to the end of yourself and you're going to need to cry out for him. Some of you, and and I probably include myself in this, don't spend much time in prayer. We just don't. And rather than say to you, look, go and read a book on prayer so that you can get better at it and then teach the rest of us how to pray, my advice to you would be this. Put yourself into situations beyond your ability so that you would need to pray in order to overcome them. So that you'd need to cry out in God, to God in prayer for Him to do a work through you. See, oftentimes the reason that we don't pray is because we don't really need God to function in our lives the way that they function today. Because they aren't living in such a way that demonstrates tangible love. But, if we are to be God's community, and I think we are, and we realize and believe in our hearts that God has done this work through us and in us, that He has released us for this very thing, it's going to lead us to have to say, We need to live lives of tangible love. And when we get to that point where we start to see what it will take to do that in our relationships and in our environments and in our acts of service to one another and to the world, it's going to lead us to say, I cannot do this on my own. And God says, great. This is the reason why I have a relationship with you is so that I could move in you and do more than you could do on your own. So let's run to him in prayer, shall we? And ask him to do this. Father, we understand and believe that it's your will to have a people that would live for your glory. And we thank you, God, so much that you're a gracious God that covers over our sins when we fail to do just that. And we forget the story and we live to our own glory instead of yours. Thank you that Jesus died for those things too. And and so even as failures for doing all the things that we're talking about doing today, there is grace at the cross for us. But thank you too that we have a spirit that lives in us that can empower us to do more than we can do on our own. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that you'd move in our hearts and lead us to live relationships out so that we would actually love one another's love one another when when we're wronged that we would cancel debts that we have against one another and and do that for your glory not for our good we understand that it'll lead to our good and so we thank you for that i pray that as a church we would be open with our lives and create space in our homes for people to exist as who they are and that that would come to let them know that you love them and you've created room for them and you've made a way for them to be reconciled to you. And last, I pray, God, that we would all take account of all the things that you've given us and we would ask the question, how might I use this for your glory? Holy Spirit, I ask that you'd lead us in this task. We need you. And so we cry out to you now. In Christ's name, amen.